BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Chapter 18 of The Warden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Warden by Anthony Trollope. Chapter 18. The Warden is Very Obstinate. Dr. Grantly is here, sir, greeted his ears before the door was well open. And Mrs. Grantly. They have the sitting room above and are waiting up for you. There was something in the tone of the man's voice which seemed to indicate that even he looked upon the warden as a runaway schoolboy, just recaptured by his guardian, and that he pitied the culprit, though he could not but be horrified at the crime. The warden endeavored to appear unconcerned, as he said, oh, Indeed, I'll go upstairs at once. But he failed signally. There was perhaps a ray of comfort in the presence of his married daughter, that is to say, of comparative comfort, seeing that his son-in-law was there, but how much would he have preferred that they should both have been safe at Plumstead Episcopi? However, upstairs he went, the waiter slowly preceding him, and on the door being opened, the archdeacon was discovered standing in the middle of the room, erect, indeed, as usual, but oh, how sorrowful! And on the dingy sofa behind him reclined his patient wife. "'Papa, I thought you were never coming back,' said the lady. "'It's twelve o'clock.' "'Yes, my dear,' said the warden. "'The attorney general named ten for my meeting. "'To be sure, ten is late, but what could I do, you know? "'Great men will have their own way.' "'And he gave his daughter a kiss and shook hands with the doctor "'and again tried to look unconcerned. "'And you have absolutely been with the attorney general?' asked the archdeacon. Mr. Harding signified that he had. "'Oh, good heavens, how unfortunate!' And the archdeacon raised his huge hands in the manner in which his friends are so accustomed to see him express disapprobation and astonishment. "'What will Sir Abraham think of it? Did you not know that it is not customary for clients to go direct to their counsel?' "'Isn't it?' asked the warden innocently. Uh, well, at any rate, I've done it now. Sir Abraham didn't seem to think it so very strange. 
the archdeacon gave a sigh that would have moved a man of war but papa what did you say to sir abraham asked the lady i asked him my dear to explain john hiram's will to me he couldn't explain it in the only way which would have satisfied me and so i resigned the wardenship resigned it said the archdeacon in a solemn voice sad and low but yet sufficiently audible a sort of whisper that macready would have envied and the galleries have applauded with a couple of rounds resigned it good heavens and the dignitary of the church sank back horrified into a horsehair armchair at least i told sir abraham that i would resign and of course i must now do so not at all said the archdeacon catching a ray of hope nothing that you say in such a way to your own counsel can be in any way binding on you of course you were there to ask his advice i'm sure sir abraham did not advise any such step mr harding could not say that he had i am sure he disadvised you from it continued the reverend cross-examiner mr harding could not deny this i'm sure sir abraham must have advised you to consult your friends to this proposition also mr harding was obliged to assent then your threat of resignation amounts to nothing and we are just where we were before mr harding was now standing on the rug moving uneasily from one foot to the other he made no distinct answer to the archdeacon's last proposition for his mind was chiefly engaged on thinking how he could escape to bed that his resignation was a thing finally fixed on a fact all but completed was not in his mind a matter of any doubt he knew his own weakness he knew how prone he was to be led but he was not weak enough to give way now to go back from the position to which his conscience had driven him after having purposely come to london to declare his determination he did not in the least doubt his resolution but he greatly doubted his power of defending it against his son-in-law you must be very tired susan said he wouldn't you like to go to bed but susan didn't want to go till her husband went she had an idea that her papa might be bullied if she were away she wasn't tired at all or at least she said so the archdeacon was pacing the room expressing by certain nods of his head his opinion of the utter fatuity of his father-in-law why at last he said and angels might have blushed at the rebuke expressed in his tone and emphasis why did you go off from barchester so suddenly why did you take such a step without giving us notice after what had passed at the palace the warden hung his head and made no reply he could not condescend to say that he had not intended to give his son-in-law the slip and as he had not the courage to avow it he said nothing papa has been too much for you said the lady the archdeacon took another turn and again ejaculated oh good heavens this time in a very low whisper but still audible i think i'll go to bed said the warden taking up a side candle at any rate you'll promise me to take no further step without consultation said the archdeacon mr harding made no answer but slowly proceeded to light his candle of course continued the other such a declaration as that you made to sir abraham means nothing 
Come, Warden, promise me this. The whole affair, you see, is already settled, and that with very little trouble or expense. Bold has been compelled to abandon his action, and all you have to do is remain quiet at the hospital. Mr. Harding still made no reply, but looked meekly into his son-in-law's face. The archdeacon thought he knew his father-in-law, but he was mistaken. He thought that he had already talked over a vacillating man to resign his promise. "'Come,' said he, "'promise Susan to give up this idea of resigning the wardenship.' The warden looked at his daughter, thinking probably at the moment that if Eleanor were contented with him, he need not so much regard his other child, and said, "'I am sure Susan will not ask me to break my word or to do what I know to be wrong.' "'Papa,' said she, "'it would be madness in you to throw up your preferment. What are you to live on?' "'God that feeds the young ravens will take care of me also,' said Mr. Harding, with a smile, as though afraid of giving offence by making his reference to Scripture too solemn. "'Pish!' said the archdeacon, turning away rapidly. "'If the ravens persisted in refusing the food prepared for them, they wouldn't be fed.' A clergyman generally dislikes to be met in argument by any scriptural quotation. He feels as affronted as a doctor does when recommended by an old woman to take some favorite dose, or as a lawyer when an unprofessional man attempts to put him down by a quibble. "'I shall have the living of Crabtree,' modestly suggested the warden. Eighty pounds a year,' sneered the archdeacon. "'And the precentorship,' said the father-in-law. "'It goes with the wardenship,' said the son-in-law. Mr. Harding was prepared to argue this point, and began to do so, but Dr. Grantly stopped him. "'My dear warden,' said he, "'this is all nonsense. Eighty pounds or a hundred and sixty makes very little difference. You can't live on it. You can't ruin Eleanor's prospects forever. In point of fact, you can't resign. The bishop wouldn't accept it. The whole thing is settled.' What I now want to do is to prevent any inconvenient tittle-tattle, any more newspaper articles. And that's what I want, too, said the warden. And to prevent that, continued the other, we mustn't let any talk of resignation get abroad. But I shall resign, said the warden, very, very meekly. Good heavens, Susan, my dear, what can I say to him? But, Papa, said Mrs. Grantly, getting up and putting her arm through that of her father. What is Eleanor to do if you throw away your income? A hot tear stood in each of the warden's eyes as he looked round upon his married daughter. Why should one sister, who was so rich, predict poverty for another? Some such idea as this was on his mind, but he gave no utterance to it. Then he thought of the pelican feeding its young with blood from its own breast, but he gave no utterance to that either. And then of Eleanor waiting for him at home, waiting to congratulate him on the end of all his trouble. "'Think of Eleanor, Papa,' said Mrs. Grantly. "'I do think of her,' said her father. "'And you will not do this rash thing?' The lady was really moved beyond her usual calm composure. "'It can never be rash to do right,' said he. "'I shall certainly resign this wardenship.' "'Then, Mr. Harding, there is nothing before you but ruin.' 
said the archdeacon, now moved beyond all endurance. Ruin, both for you and Eleanor. How do you mean to pay the monstrous expenses of this action? Mrs. Grantley suggested that as the action was abandoned, the costs would not be heavy. Indeed they will, my dear, continued he. One cannot have the Attorney General up at twelve o'clock at night for nothing. But of course your father has not thought of this. I will sell my furniture, said the warden. Furniture! ejaculated the other with a most powerful sneer. Come, Archdeacon, said the lady. We needn't mind that at present. You know you never expected Papa to pay the costs. Such absurdity is enough to provoke Job, said the Archdeacon, marching quickly up and down the room. Your father is like a child. Eight hundred pounds a year. Eight hundred and eighty with the house. With nothing to do. The very place for him. And to throw that up because some scoundrel writes an article in a newspaper. <laughs> well, I have done my duty. If he chooses to ruin his child, I cannot help it and he stood still at the fireplace and looked at himself in a dingy mirror which stood on the chimney-piece. There was a pause for about a minute, and then the warden, finding that nothing else was coming, lighted his candle and quietly said, "'Good night.' "'Good night, Papa,' said the lady. And so the warden retired, but as he closed the door behind him he heard the well-known ejaculation, "'Slower, lower,' more solemn, more ponderous than ever. Good heavens! End of chapter 18 Recording by Jessica Louise, St. Paul, Minnesota Chapter 19 of The Warden This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Warden by Anthony Trollope Chapter 19 the warden resigns. The party met the next morning at breakfast, and a very sombre affair it was, very unlike the breakfasts at Plumstead Episcopi. There were three thin, small, dry bits of bacon, each an inch long, served up under a huge old plated cover. There were four three-cornered bits of dry toast, and four square bits of buttered toast, there was a loaf of bread and some oily-looking butter, and on the sideboard there were the remains of a cold shoulder of mutton. The archdeacon, however, had not come up from his rectory to St. Paul's churchyard to enjoy himself, and therefore nothing was said of the scanty fare. The guests were as sorry as the viands. Hardly anything was said over the breakfast-table. The archdeacon munched his toast in ominous silence, turning over bitter thoughts in his deep mind. The warden tried to talk to his daughter, and she tried to answer him, but they both failed. There were no feelings at present in common between them. The warden was thinking only of getting back to Barchester, and calculating whether the archdeacon would expect him to wait for him, and Mrs. Grantley was preparing herself for a grand attack, which she was to make on her father, as agreed upon between herself and her husband during their curtain of confabulation of that morning. When the waiter had creaked out of the room with the last of the teacups, the archdeacon got up and went to the window as though to admire the view. The room looked out on a narrow passage which runs from St. Paul's churchyard to Paternoster Row, 
and Dr. Grantly patiently perused the names of the three shopkeepers whose doors were in view. The warden still kept his seat at the table and examined the pattern of the tablecloth, and Mrs. Grantly, seating herself on the sofa, began to knit. After a while the warden pulled his Bradshaw out of his pocket and began laboriously to consult it. There was a train for Barchester at 10 a.m. That was out of the question, for it was nearly 10 already. Another at 3 p.m., another the night mail train at 9 p.m. The 3 o'clock train would take him home to tea and would suit very well. "'My dear,' said he, "'I think I shall go back home at 3 o'clock today. I shall get home at half-past eight. I don't think there's anything to keep me in London.' the archdeacon and i return by the early train to-morrow papa won't you wait and go back with us why eleanor will expect me to-night and i've so much to do and much to do said the archdeacon sotto voce but the warden heard him you'd better wait for us papa thank you my dear i think i'll go this afternoon the tamest animal will turn when driven too hard, and even Mr. Harding was beginning to fight for his own way. "'I suppose you won't be back before three, said the lady, addressing her husband. "'I must leave this at two, said the warden. "'Quite out of the question,' said the archdeacon, answering his wife, and still reading the shopkeeper's names. "'I don't suppose I shall be back till five. There was another long pause, during which Mr. Harding continued to study his Bradshaw. "'I must go to Cox and Cummins,' said the archdeacon at last. "'Oh, to Cox and Cummins,' said the warden. It was quite a matter of indifference to him where his son-in-law went. The names of Cox and Cummins had now no interest in his ears. What had he to do with Cox and Cummins further?' having already had his suit finally adjudicated upon in a court of conscience, a judgment without power of appeal fully registered, and the matter settled so that all the lawyers in London could not disturb it. The archdeacon could go to Cox and Cummins, could remain there all day in anxious discussion, but what might be said there was no longer matter of interest to him, who was so soon to lay aside the name of warden of Barchester Hospital. The archdeacon took up his shining new clerical hat and put on his black new clerical gloves and looked heavy, respectable, decorous, and opulent, a decided clergyman of the Church of England, every inch of him. "'I suppose I shall see you at Barchester the day after tomorrow,' said he. The warden supposed he would. "'I must once more beseech you to take no further steps till you see my father, if you owe me nothing.' and the archdeacon looked as though he thought a great deal were due to him. At least you owe so much to my father. And without waiting for a reply, Dr. Grantly wended his way to Cox and Cummins. Mrs. Grantly waited till the last fall of her husband's foot was heard as he turned out of the court into St. Paul's churchyard, and then commenced her task of talking her father over. Papa, she began, this is a most serious business. Indeed it is, said the warden, ringing the bell. I greatly feel the distress of mind you must have endured. I am sure you do, my dear. And he ordered the waiter to bring him pen, ink, and paper. 
Are you going to write, Papa? Yes, my dear, I'm going to write my resignation to the bishop. Oh, pray, pray, Papa, put it off till our return. Pray, put it off till you've seen the bishop. Dear Papa, for my sake, for Eleanor's. It is for your sake and Eleanor's that I do this. I hope, at least, that my children may never have to be ashamed of their father. How can you talk about shame, Papa? And she stopped while the waiter creaked in with the paper, and then slowly creaked out again. How can you talk about shame? You know what all your friends think about this question. The warden spread his paper on the table, placing it on the meager blotting book which the hotel afforded, and sat himself down to write. You won't refuse me one request, Papa, continued his daughter. You won't refuse to delay your letter for two short days. Two days can make no possible difference. My dear, said he naively, if I waited till I got to Barchester, I might perhaps be prevented. But surely you would not wish to offend the bishop, said she. God forbid. The bishop is not apt to take offense, and knows me too well to take in bad part anything that I may be called on to do. But Papa Susan, said he, my mind on this subject is made up. It is not without much repugnance that I act in opposition to the advice of such men as Sir Abraham Haphazard and the Archdeacon. But in this matter I can take no advice. I cannot alter the resolution to which I have come. But two days, Papa, no, nor can I delay it. You may add to my present unhappiness by pressing me, but you cannot change my purpose. It will be a comfort to me if you will let the matter rest. And dipping his pen into the inkstand, he fixed his eyes intently on the paper. There was something in his manner which taught his daughter to perceive that he was in earnest. She had at one time ruled supreme in her father's house, but she knew that there were moments when, mild and meek as he was, he would have his way, and the present was an occasion of the sort. She returned, therefore, to her knitting, and very shortly after left the room. The warden was now at liberty to compose his letter, and, as it was characteristic of the man, it shall be given at full length. The official letter, which, when written, seemed to him to be too formally cold to be sent alone to so dear a friend, was accompanied by a private note, and both are here inserted. The letter of resignation ran as follows. Chapter Hotel, St. Paul's, London, August 18. My Lord Bishop, It is with the greatest pain that I feel myself constrained to resign into your Lordship's hands the wardenship of the hospital at Barchester, which you so kindly conferred upon me now nearly twelve years since. I need not explain the circumstances which have made this step appear necessary to me. You are aware that a question has arisen as to the right of the warden to the income which has been allotted to the wardenship. It has seemed to me that this right is not well made out, and I hesitate to incur the risk of taking an income to which my legal claim appears doubtful. The office of precentor of the cathedral is, as your lordship is aware, joined to that of the warden. That is to say, the precentor has for many years been the warden of the hospital. 
there is however nothing to make the junction of the two offices necessary and unless you or the dean and chapter object to such an arrangement i would wish to keep the precentorship the income of this office will now be necessary to me indeed i do not know why i should be ashamed to say that i should have difficulty in supporting myself without it your lordship and such others as you may please to consult on the matter will at once see that my resignation of the wardenship need offer not the slightest bar to its occupation by another person i am thought in the wrong by all those whom i have consulted in the matter i have very little but an inward and an unguided conviction of my own to bring me to this step and i shall indeed be hurt to find that any slur is thrown on the preferment which your kindness bestowed on me by my resignation of it i at any rate for one shall look on any successor whom you may appoint as enjoying a clerical situation of the highest respectability and one to which your lordship's nomination gives an indefeasible right i cannot finish this official letter without again thanking your lordship for all your great kindness and i beg to subscribe myself your lordship's most obedient servant septimus harding warden of barchester hospital and precentor of the cathedral he then wrote the following private note my dear bishop i cannot send you the accompanying official letter without a warmer expression of thanks for all your kindness than would befit a document which may to a certain degree be made public you i know will understand the feeling and perhaps pity the weakness which makes me resign the hospital i am not made of calibre strong enough to withstand public attack were i convinced that i stood on ground perfectly firm that i was certainly justified in taking eight hundred a year under hiram's will i should feel bound by duty to retain the position however unendurable might be the nature of the assault but as i do not feel this conviction i cannot believe that you will think me wrong in what i am doing i had at one time an idea of keeping only some moderate portion of the income perhaps three hundred a year and of remitting the remainder to the trustees but it occurred to me and i think with reason that by so doing i should place my successors in an invidious position and greatly damage your patronage my dear friend let me have a line from you to say that you do not blame me for what i am doing and that the officiating vicar of crabtree parva will be the same to you as the warden of the hospital i am very anxious about the precentorship the archdeacon thinks it must go with the wardenship i think not and that having it i cannot be ousted i will however be guided by you and the dean no other duty will suit me so well or come so much within my power of adequate performance i thank you from my heart for the preferment which i am now giving up and for all your kindness and am dear bishop now as always yours most sincerely septimus harding london august eighteen blank having written these letters and made a copy of the former one for the benefit of the archdeacon mr harding whom we must now cease to call the warden he having designated himself so for the last time found that it was nearly two o'clock and that he must prepare for his journey yes from this time he never again admitted the name by which he had been so familiarly known and in which to tell the truth he had rejoiced 
the love of titles is common to all men and a vicar or fellow is as pleased at becoming mr archdeacon or mr provost as a lieutenant at getting his captaincy or a city tallow-chandler in becoming sir john on the occasion of a queen's visit to a new bridge but warden he was no longer and the name of precentor though the office was to him so dear confers in itself no sufficient distinction our friend therefore again became mr harding mrs grantly had gone out he had therefore no one to delay him by further entreaties to postpone his journey he had soon arranged his bag and paid his bill and leaving a note for his daughter in which he put a copy of his official letter he got into a cab and drove away to the station with something of triumph in his heart had he not cause for triumph had he not been supremely successful had he not for the first time in his life held his own purpose against that of his son-in-law and manfully combated against great odds against the archdeacon's wife as well as the archdeacon had he not gained a great victory and was it not fit that he should step into his cab with triumph he had not told Eleanor when he would return, but she was on the lookout for him by every train by which he could arrive, and the pony carriage was at Barchester Station when the train drew up at the platform. "'My dear,' said he, sitting beside her, as she steered her little vessel to one side of the road to make room for the clattering omnibus as they passed from the station into the town, "'I hope you'll be able to feel a proper degree of respect for the vicar of Crabtree.' "'Dear Papa,' said she i'm so glad there was great comfort in returning home to that pleasant house though he was to leave it so soon and in discussing with his daughter all that he had done and all that he had to do it must take some time to get out of one house into another the curate at crabtree could not be abolished under six months that is unless other provision could be made for him and then the furniture the most of that must be sold to pay Sir Abraham haphazard for sitting up till twelve at night. Mr. Harding was strangely ignorant as to lawyers' bills. He had no idea, from twenty pounds to two thousand, as to the sum in which he was indebted for legal assistance. True, he had called in no lawyer himself. True, he had been no consenting party to the employment of either Cox and Cummins or Sir Abraham. He had never been consulted on such matters. The archdeacon had managed all this himself, never for a moment suspecting that Mr. Harding would take upon him to end the matter in a way of his own. Had the lawyer's bills been ten thousand pounds, Mr. Harding could not have helped it, but he was not on that account disposed to dispute his own liability. The question never occurred to him, but it did occur to him that he had very little money at his banker's, that he could receive nothing further from the hospital, and that the sale of the furniture was his only resource. "'Not all, Papa,' said Eleanor pleadingly. "'Not quite all, my dear,' said he. "'That is, if we can help it. We must have a little at Crabtree, but it can only be a little. We must put a bold front on it, Nelly. It isn't easy to come down from affluence to poverty.' And so they planned their future mode of life, the father taking comfort from the reflection that his daughter would soon be freed from it, and she resolving that her father would soon have in her own house a ready means of escape from the solitude of the Crabtree vicarage. When the archdeacon left his wife and father-in-law at the chapter coffee-house to go to Messrs. Cox and Cummins, he had no very defined idea of what he had to do when he got there. 
gentlemen when at law or in any way engaged in matters requiring legal assistance are very apt to go to their lawyers without much absolute necessity gentlemen when doing so are apt to describe such attendance as quite compulsory and very disagreeable the lawyers on the other hand do not at all see the necessity though they are quite agree as to the disagreeable nature of the visit the gentlemen when so engaged are usually somewhat gravelled at finding nothing to say to their learned friends they generally talk a little politics a little weather ask some few foolish questions about their suit and then withdraw having passed half an hour in a small dingy waiting-room in company with some junior assistant clerk and ten minutes with the members of the firm the business is then over for which the gentleman has come up to london probably a distance of a hundred and fifty miles to be sure he goes to the play and dines at his friend's club and has a bachelor's liberty and a bachelor's recreation for three or four days and he could not probably plead the desire of such gratifications as a reason to his wife for a trip to london married ladies when your husbands find they are positively obliged to attend their legal advisers the nature of the duty to be performed is generally of this description the archdeacon would not have dreamt of leaving london without going to cox and cummins and yet he had nothing to say to them the game was up he plainly saw that mr harding in this manner was not to be moved his only remaining business on this head was to pay the bill and have done with it and i think it may be taken for granted that whatever the cause may be that takes a gentleman to a lawyer's chambers he never goes there to pay his bill Dr. Grantley, however, in the eyes of Monsieur Cox and Cummins, represented the spiritualities of the Diocese of Barchester, as Mr. Chadwick did the temporalities, and was, therefore, too great a man to undergo the half-hour in the clerk's room. It will not be necessary that we should listen to the notes of sorrow in which the archdeacon bewailed to Mr. Cox the weakness of his father-in-law, and the end of all their hopes of triumph nor need we repeat the various exclamations of surprise with which the mournful intelligence was received no tragedy occurred though mr cox a short and somewhat bull-necked man was very near a fit of apoplexy when he first attempted to ejaculate that fatal word resign over and over again did mr cox attempt to enforce on the archdeacon the propriety of urging on mr warden the madness of the deed he was about to do eight hundred a year said mr cox and nothing whatever to do said mr cummins who had joined the conference no private fortune i believe said mr cox not a shilling said mr cummins in a very low voice shaking his head i've never heard of such a case in all my experience said mr cox eight hundred a year and as nice a house as any gentleman could wish to hang up his hat in said mr cummins and an unmarried daughter i believe said mr cox with much moral seriousness in his tone the archdeacon only sighed as each separate wail was uttered and shook his head signifying that the fatuity of some people was past belief i'll tell you what he might do said mr cummins brightening up i'll tell you how you might save it let him exchange exchange where said the archdeacon exchange for a living there's quiverful of puddingdale he has twelve children and would be delighted to get the hospital to be sure puddingdale's only four hundred but that would be saving something out of the fire mr harding would have a curate and still keep three hundred or three hundred and fifty 
the archdeacon opened his ears and listened he really thought the scheme might do the newspapers continued mr cummins might hammer away at quiverful every day for the next six months without his minding them the archdeacon took up his hat and returned to his hotel thinking the matter over deeply at any rate he would sound quiverful a man with twelve children would do much to double his income End of chapter 19. Recording by Jessica Louise, St. Paul, Minnesota. Chapter 20 of The Warden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Warden by Anthony Trollope. Chapter 20. Farewell. On the morning after Mr. Harding's return home, he received a note from the bishop full of affection, condolence, and praise. "'Pray come to me at once,' wrote the bishop, "'that we may see what had better be done as to the hospital. I will not say a word to dissuade you, but I don't like your going to Crabtree. At any rate, come to me at once.' Mr. Harding did go to him at once, and long and confidential was the consultation between the two old friends." There they sat together the whole long day, plotting to get the better of the archdeacon and to carry out little schemes of their own, which they knew would be opposed by the whole weight of his authority. The bishop's first idea was that Mr. Harding, if left to himself, would certainly starve, not in the figurative sense in which so many of our ladies and gentlemen do starve on incomes from one to five hundred a year not that he would be starved as regarded dress coats port wine and pocket money but that he would positively perish of inanition for want of bread how is a man to live when he gives up all his income said the bishop to himself and then the good-natured little man began to consider how his friend might be rescued from a death so horrid and painful his first proposition to mr harding was that they should live together at the palace he, the bishop, positively assured Mr. Harding that he wanted another resident chaplain, not a young working chaplain, but a steady middle-aged chaplain, one who would dine and drink a glass of wine with him, talk about the archdeacon, and poke the fire. The bishop did not positively name all these duties, but he gave Mr. Harding to understand that such would be the nature of the service required it was not without much difficulty that mr harding made his friend see that this would not suit him that he could not throw up the bishop's preferment and then come and hang on at the bishop's table that he could not allow people to say of him that it was an easy matter to abandon his own income as he was able to sponge on that of another person he succeeded however in explaining that the plan would not do and then the bishop brought forward another which he had in his sleeve he the bishop had in his own will left certain monies to mr harding's two daughters imagining that mr harding would himself want no such assistance during his own lifetime this legacy amounted to three thousand pounds each duty-free and he now pressed it as a gift on his friend the girls you know said he will have it just the same when you're gone and they won't want it sooner and as for the interest during my lifetime it isn't worth talking about i have more than enough with much difficulty and heartfelt sorrow mr harding refused also this offer no 
his wish was to support himself however poorly not to be supported on the charity of any one it was hard to make the bishop understand this it was hard to make him comprehend that the only real favour he could confer was the continuation of his independent friendship but at last even this was done at any rate thought the bishop he will come and dine with me from time to time and if he be absolutely starving i shall see it touching the precentorship the bishop was clearly of opinion that it could be held without the other situation an opinion from which no one differed and it was therefore soon settled among all the parties concerned that mr harding should still be the precentor of the cathedral on the day following mr harding's return the archdeacon reached plumstead full of mr cummins's scheme regarding puddingdale and mr quiverful on the very next morning he drove over to puddingdale and obtained the full consent of the wretched clerical priam who was endeavouring to feed his poor hecuba and a dozen of hectors on the small proceeds of his ecclesiastical kingdom mr quiverful had no doubts as to the legal rights of the warden his conscience would be quite clear as to accepting the income and as to the jupiter he begged to assure the archdeacon that he was quite indifferent to any emanations from the profane portion of the periodical press having so far succeeded he next sounded the bishop but here he was astonished by most unexpected resistance the bishop did not think it would do not do why not and seeing that his father was not shaken he repeated the question in a severer form why not do my lord his lordship looked very unhappy and shuffled about in his chair but still didn't give way he thought puddingdale wouldn't do for mr harding it was too far from barchester oh of course i'll have a curate the bishop also thought that mr quiverful wouldn't do for the hospital such an exchange wouldn't look well at such a time and when pressed harder he declared he didn't think mr harding would accept of puddingdale under any circumstances how is he to live demanded the archdeacon the bishop with tears in his eyes declared that he had not the slightest conception how life was to be sustained within him at all the archdeacon then left his father and went down to the hospital but mr harding wouldn't listen at all to the puddingdale scheme to his eyes it had no attraction it savoured of simony and was likely to bring down upon him harder and more deserved strictures than any he had yet received he positively declined to become vicar of puddingdale under any circumstances the archdeacon waxed wroth talked big and looked bigger he said something about dependence and beggary, spoke of the duty every man was under to earn his bread, made passing allusions to the follies of youth and waywardness of age, as though Mr. Harding were afflicted by both, and ended by declaring that he had done. He felt that he had left no stone unturned to arrange matters on the best and easiest footing, that he had in fact so arranged them that he had so managed that there was no further need of any anxiety in the matter and how had he been paid his advice had been systematically rejected he had been not only slighted but distrusted and avoided he and his measures had been utterly thrown over as had been sir abraham who he had reason to know was much pained at what had occurred he now found it was useless to interfere any further and he should retire 
if any further assistance were required from him he would probably be called on and should be again happy to come forward and so he left the hospital and has not since entered it from that day to this and here we must take leave of archdeacon grantly we fear that he is represented in these pages as being worse than he is but we've had to do with his foibles and not with his virtues we have seen only the weak side of the man and have lacked the opportunity of bringing him forward on his strong ground that he is a man somewhat too fond of his own way and not sufficiently scrupulous in his manner of achieving it his best friends cannot deny that he is bigoted in favour not so much of his doctrines as of his cloth is also true and it is true that the possession of a large income is a desire that sits near his heart nevertheless the archdeacon is a gentleman and a man of conscience he spends his money liberally and does the work he has to do with the best of his ability he improves the tone of society of those among whom he lives his aspirations are of a healthy if not the highest kind though never an austere man he upholds propriety of conduct both by example and precept he is generous to the poor and hospitable to the rich in matters of religion he is sincere and yet no pharisee he is an earnest and yet no fanatic on the whole the archdeacon of barchester is a man doing more good than harm a man to be furthered and supported though perhaps also to be controlled and it is a matter of regret to us that the course of our narrative has required that we should see more of his weakness than his strength mr harding allowed himself no rest till everything was prepared for his departure from the hospital it may be as well to mention that he was not driven to the stern necessity of selling all his furniture he had been quite in earnest in his intention to do so but it was soon made known to him that the claims of Monsieur Cox and Cummins made no such step obligatory. The archdeacon had thought it wise to make use of the threat of the lawyer's bill to frighten his father-in-law into compliance, but he had no intention to saddle Mr. Harding with costs, which had been incurred by no means exclusively for his benefit. The amount of the bill was added to the diocesan account, and was in fact paid out of the bishop's pocket, without any consciousness on the part of his lordship. A great part of his furniture he did resolve to sell, having no other means to dispose of it, and the ponies and carriage were transferred by private contract to the use of an old maiden lady in the city. For his present use Mr. Harding took a lodging in Barchester, and thither were conveyed such articles as he wanted for daily use. His music, books, and instruments, his own armchair, and Eleanor's pet sofa, her teapoy and his cellarette, and also the slender but still sufficient contents of his wine-cellar. Mrs. Grantly had much wished that her sister would reside at Plumstead till her father's house at Crabtree should be ready for her, but Eleanor herself strongly resisted this proposal. It was in vain urged upon her that a lady in lodgings cost more than a gentleman, and that under her father's present circumstances such an expense should be avoided. Eleanor had not pressed her father to give up the hospital in order that she might live at Plumstead Rectory and he alone in his Barchester lodgings. Nor did Eleanor think that she would be treating a certain gentleman very fairly if she betook herself to the house which he would be the least desirous of entering of any in the county. 
so she got a little bedroom for herself behind the sitting-room and just over the little back parlour of the chemist with whom they were to lodge there was somewhat of a savour of senna softened by peppermint about the place but on the whole the lodgings were clean and comfortable the day had been fixed for the migration of the ex-warden and all barchester were in a state of excitement on the subject opinion was much divided as to the propriety of mr harding's conduct the mercantile part of the community the mayor and corporation and council also most of the ladies were loud in his praise nothing could be more noble nothing more generous nothing more upright but the gentry were of a different way of thinking especially the lawyers and the clergymen they said such conduct was very weak and undignified that mr harding evinced a lamentable want of esprit de corps as well as courage and that such an abdication must do much harm and could do but little good on the evening before he left he summoned all the bedesmen into his parlour to wish them good-bye with bunce he had been in frequent communication since his return from london and had been at much pains to explain to the old man the cause of his resignation without in any way prejudicing the position of his successor the others also he had seen more or less frequently and had heard from most of them separately some expression of regret at his departure but he had postponed his farewell till the last evening he now bade the maid put wine and glasses on the table and had the chairs arranged around the room and sent bunts to each of the men to request that they would come and say farewell to their late warden soon the noise of aged scuffling feet was heard upon the gravel and in the little hall and the eleven men who were enabled to leave their rooms were assembled come in my friends come in said the warden he was still warden then come in and sit down and he took the hand of abel handy who was the nearest to him and led the limping grumbler to a chair the others followed slowly and bashfully the infirm the lame and the blind poor wretches who had been so happy had they but known it now their aged faces were covered with shame and every kind word from their master was a coal of fire burning on their heads when first the news had reached them that mr harding was going to leave the hospital it had been received with a kind of triumph his departure was as it were a prelude to success he had admitted his want of right to the money about which they were disputing and as it did not belong to him of course it did to them the one hundred a year to each of them was actually becoming a reality and abel handy was a hero and bunce a faint-hearted sycophant worthy neither of honour nor friendship but other tidings soon made their way into the old men's rooms it was first notified to them that the income abandoned by mr harding would not come to them and these accounts were confirmed by attorney finney they were then informed that mr harding's place would at once be filled by another that the new warden could not be a kinder man they all knew that he would be a less friendly one most suspected and then came the bitter information that from the moment of mr harding's departure the tuppence a day his own peculiar gift must of necessity be withdrawn and this was to be the end of all their mighty struggle of their fight for their rights of their petition and their debates and their hopes 
they were to change the best of masters for a possible bad one and to lose tuppence a day each man no unfortunate as this was it was not the worst or nearly the worst as will just now be seen sit down sit down my friends said the warden i want to say a word to you and to drink your healths before i leave you come up here moody here's a chair for you come jonathan crumple and by degrees he got the men to be seated it was not surprising that they should hang back with faint hearts having returned so much kindness with such deep ingratitude last of all of them came bunce and with sorrowful mien and slow step got into his accustomed seat near the fireplace when they were all in their places mr harding rose to address them and then finding himself not quite at home on his legs he sat down again my dear old friends said he you all know that i am going to leave you there was a sort of murmur ran around the room intended perhaps to express regret at his departure but it was but a murmur and might have meant that or anything else there has lately been some misunderstanding between us you have thought i believe that you did not get all that you were entitled to and that the funds of the hospital have not been properly disposed of as for me i cannot say what should be the disposition of these monies or how they should be managed and i have therefore thought it best to go we never wanted to drive your reverence out of it said handy no indeed your reverence said sculpit we never thought it would come to this when i signed the petition that is i i didn't sign it because let his reverence speak can't you said moody no continued mr harding i am sure you did not wish to turn me out but i thought it best to leave you i am not a very good hand at a lawsuit as you may all guess and when it seemed necessary that our ordinary quiet mode of living should be disturbed i thought it better to go i am neither angry nor offended with any man in the hospital here bunce uttered a kind of groan very clearly expressive of disagreement i am neither angry nor displeased with any man in the hospital repeated mr harding emphatically if any man has been wrong and i don't say any man has he has erred through wrong advice in this country all are entitled to look for their own rights and you have done no more as long as your interests and my interests were at variance i could give you no counsel on this subject but the connection between us has ceased my income can no longer depend on your doings and therefore as i leave you i venture to offer you my advice the men all declared that they would from henceforth be entirely guided by mr harding's opinion in their affairs some gentlemen will probably take my place here very soon and i strongly advise you to be prepared to receive him in a kindly spirit and to raise no further question among yourselves as to the amount of his income were you to succeed in lessening what he has to receive you would not increase your own allowance the surplus would not go to you your wants are adequately provided for and your position could hardly be improved god bless your reverence we knows it said spriggs it's all true your reverence said sculpit we sees it all now 
"'Yes, Mr. Harding,' said Bunce, opening his mouth for the first time. "'I believe they do understand it now, now that they're driven from under the same roof with them, such a master as not one of them will ever know again, now that they're like to be in sore want of a friend.' "'Come, come, Bunce,' said Mr. Harding, blowing his nose and manoeuvring to wipe his eyes at the same time. "'Oh, as to that,' said Handy, "'we none of us never wanted to do Mr. Harding no harm. "'If he's going now, it's not along of us, "'and I don't see for what Mr. Bunce speaks up again us that way.' "'You've ruined yourselves, and you've ruined me too, and that's why,' said Bunce. "'Nonsense, Bunce,' said Mr. Harding. "'There's nobody ruined at all. "'I hope you'll let me leave you all friends.' I hope you'll all drink a glass of wine in friendly feeling with me and with one another. You'll have a good friend, I don't doubt, in your new warden, and if ever you want any other, why, after all, I'm not going so far off but that I shall sometimes see you. And then, having finished his speech, Mr. Harding filled all the glasses, and himself handed each a glass to the men round him, and raising his own, said, God bless you all. You have my heartfelt wishes for your welfare. I hope you live contented and die trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and thankful to Almighty God for the good things he has given you. God bless you, my friends. And Mr. Harding drank his wine. Another murmur, somewhat more articulate than the first, passed round the circle, and this time it was intended to imply a blessing on Mr. Harding. It had, however, but little cordiality in it. Poor old men! How could they be cordial with their sore consciences and shamed faces? How could they bid God bless him with hearty voices and a true benison, knowing as they did that their vile cabal had driven him from his happy home, and sent him in his old age to seek shelter under a strange roof-tree? They did their best, however, they drank their wine, and withdrew, as they left the hall door, Mr. Harding shook hands with each of the men and spoke a kind word to them about their individual cases and ailments, and so they departed, answering his questions in the fewest words, and retreated to their dens, a sorrowful, repentant crew. All but Bunce, who still remained to make his own farewell. "'There's poor old Bell,' said Mr. Harding. I mustn't go without saying a word to him. Come through with me, Bunce, and bring the wine with you. And so they went through to the men's cottages, and found the old man propped up as usual in his bed. I've come to say good-bye to you, Bell, said Mr. Harding, speaking loud, for the old man was deaf. And are you going away then, really? asked Bell. "'Indeed I am, and I've brought you a glass of wine, so that we may part friends, as we lived, you know.' The old man took the proffered glass in his shaking hands, and drank it eagerly. "'God bless you, Bell,' said Mr. Harding. "'Good-bye, my old friend.' "'And so you're really going?' the old man again asked. "'Indeed I am, Bell.' The poor old bedridden creature still kept Mr. Harding's hand in his own, and the warden thought that he had met with something like warmth of feeling in the one of all his subjects from whom it was the least likely to be expected, for poor old Bell had nearly outlived all human feelings. "'And your reverence,' said he, 
and then he paused, while his old palsied head shook horribly, and his shriveled cheek sank lower within his jaws, and his glazy eye gleamed with a momentary light. "'And your reverence, shall we get the hundred a year, then?' How gently did Mr. Harding try to extinguish the false hope of money which had been so wretchedly raised to disturb the quiet of the dying man. One other week and his mortal coil would be shuffled off. In one short week would God resume his soul, and set it apart for its irrevocable doom. Seven more tedious days and nights of senseless inactivity, and all would be over for poor Bell in this world. And yet, with his last audible words, he was demanding his moneyed rights, and asserting himself to be the proper heir of John Hiram's bounty. Not on him, poor sinner as he was, be the load of such sin. Mr. Harding returned to his parlour, meditating with a sick heart on what he had seen, and bunts with him. We will not describe the parting of these two good men, for good men they were. It was in vain that the late warden endeavoured to comfort the heart of the old beadsman. Poor old Bunce felt that his days of comfort were gone. The hospital had to him been a happy home, but it could be so no longer. He had had honour there and friendship. He had recognised his master and had been recognised. All his wants, both of soul and body, had been supplied, and he had been a happy man. He wept grievously as he parted from his friend, and the tears of an old man are bitter. "'It is all over for me in this world,' said he, as he gave the last squeeze to Mr. Harding's hand. "'I have now to forgive those who have injured me, and to die.' And so the old man went out, and then Mr. Harding gave way to his grief, and he too wept aloud." End of chapter 20 Recording by Jessica Louise, St. Paul, Minnesota Chapter 21 of The Warden This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Warden by Anthony Trollope Chapter 21 Conclusion our tale is now done, and it only remains to us to collect the scattered threads of our little story, and to tie them into a seemly knot. This will not be a work of labor, either to the author or to his readers. We have not to deal with many personages, or with stirring events, and were it not for the custom of the thing, we might leave it to the imagination of all concerned to conceive how affairs at Barchester arranged themselves. On the morning after the day last alluded to, Mr. Harding, at an early hour, walked out of the hospital with his daughter under his arm, and sat down quietly to breakfast at his lodgings over the chemist's shop. There was no parade about his departure. No one, not even Bunce, was there to witness it. Had he walked to the apothecary's thus early to get a piece of court plaster or a box of lozenges, he could not have done it with less appearance of an important movement. There was a tear in Eleanor's eye as she passed through the big gateway and over the bridge, but Mr. Harding walked with an elastic step and entered his new abode with a pleasant face. "'Now, my dear,' said he, "'you have everything ready, and you can make tea here just as nicely as in the parlour at the hospital.' 
So Eleanor took off her bonnet and made the tea. After this manner did the late warden of Barchester Hospital accomplish his flitting and change his residence. It was not long before the archdeacon brought his father to discuss the subject of a new warden. Of course he looked upon the nomination as his own, and he had in his eye three or four fitting candidates, seeing that Mr. Cummins's plan as to the living of Puddingdale could not be brought to bear. How can I describe the astonishment which confounded him when his father declared that he would appoint no successor to Mr. Harding? "'If we can get the matter set to rights, Mr. Harding will return,' said the bishop, "'and if we cannot, it will be wrong to put any other gentleman into so cruel a position.' It was in vain that the archdeacon argued and lectured, and even threatened— in vain he my lorded his poor father in his sternest manner in vain his good heavens were ejaculated in a tone that might have moved a whole synod let alone one weak and aged bishop nothing could induce his father to fill up the vacancy caused by mr harding's retirement even john bold would have pitied the feelings with which the archdeacon returned to plumstead the church was falling, nay, already in ruins. Its dignitaries were yielding without a struggle before the blows of its antagonists. And one of its most respected bishops, his own father, the man considered by all the world as being in such matters under his, Dr. Grantley's, control, had positively resolved to capitulate and own himself vanquished. And how fared the hospital under the resolve of its visitor? Badly indeed. It is now some years since Mr. Harding left it, and the warden's house is still tenantless. Old Bell has died in Billy Gazy, and One-Eyed Spriggs has drunk himself to death, and three others of the twelve have been gathered into the churchyard mould. Six have gone, and the six vacancies remain unfilled. Yes, six have died, with no kind friend to solace their last moments with no wealthy neighbor to administer comforts and ease the stings of death. Mr. Harding, indeed, did not desert them. From him they had such consolation as a dying man may receive from his Christian pastor. But it was the occasional kindness of a stranger which ministered to them, and not the constant presence of a master, a neighbor, and a friend. Nor were those who remained better off than those who died dissensions rose among them and contests for preeminence and then they began to understand that soon one of them would be the last some one wretched being would be alone there in that now comfortless hospital the miserable relic of what had once been so good and so comfortable the building of the hospital itself has not been allowed to go to ruins Mr. Chadwick, who still holds his stewardship, and pays the accruing rents into an account opened at a bank for the purpose, sees to that. But the whole place has become disordered and ugly. The warden's garden is a wretched wilderness, the drive and paths are covered with weeds, the flower beds are bare, and the unshorn lawn is now a mass of long damp grass and unwholesome moss. The beauty of the place is gone its attractions have withered alas a very few years since it was the prettiest spot in barchester and now it is a disgrace to the city mr harding did not go out to crabtree parva 
an arrangement was made which respected the homestead of mr smith and his happy family and put mr harding into possession of a small living within the walls of the city it is the smallest possible parish containing a part of the cathedral close and a few old houses adjoining the church is a singular little gothic building perched over a gateway through which the close is entered and is approached by a flight of stone steps which leads down under the archway of the gate it is no bigger than an ordinary room perhaps twenty-seven feet long by eighteen wide but still it is a perfect church it contains an old carved pulpit and a reading desk a tiny altar under a window filled with dark old colored glass a font some half-dozen pews and perhaps a dozen seats for the poor and also a vestry the roof is high-pitched and of black old oak and the three large beams which support it run down to the side walls and terminate in grotesquely carved faces two devils and an angel on one side two angels and a devil on the other such is the church of st cuthbert at barchester of which mr harding became rector with a clear income of seventy five pounds a year here he performs afternoon service every sunday and administers the sacrament once in every three months his audience is not large and had they been so he could not have accommodated them but enough come to fill his six pews and on the front seat of those devoted to the poor is always to be seen our old friend mr bunce decently arrayed in his beadsman's gown mr harding is still precentor of barchester and it is very rarely the case that those who attend the sunday morning service miss the gratification of hearing him chant the litany as no other man in england can do it he is neither a discontented nor an unhappy man he still inhabits the lodgings to which he went on leaving the hospital but he now has them to himself three months after that time eleanor became mrs bold and of course removed to her husband's house there were some difficulties to be got over on the occasion of the marriage the archdeacon who could not so soon overcome his grief would not be persuaded to grace the ceremony with his presence but he allowed his wife and children to be there the marriage took place in the cathedral and the bishop himself officiated it was the last occasion on which he ever did so and though he still lives it is not probable that he will ever do so again not long after the marriage perhaps six months when eleanor's bridal honors were fading and persons were beginning to call her mrs bold without twittering the archdeacon consented to meet john bold at a dinner party and since that time they have become almost friends the archdeacon firmly believes that his brother-in-law was as a bachelor an infidel an unbeliever in the great truths of our religion but that matrimony has opened his eyes as it has those of others and bold is equally inclined to think that time has softened the asperities of the archdeacon's character friends though they are they do not often revert to the feud of the hospital mr harding we say is not an unhappy man he keeps his lodgings but they are of little use to him except as being the one spot on earth which he calls his own his time is spent chiefly at his daughter's or at the palace he is never left alone even should he wish to be so 
and within a twelvemonth of Eleanor's marriage his determination to live at his own lodging had been so far broken through and abandoned that he consented to have his violoncello permanently removed to his daughter's house. Every other day a message is brought to him from the bishop. The bishop's compliments, and his lordship is not very well today, and he hopes Mr. Harding will dine with him. This bulletin as to the old man's health is a myth, for though he is over eighty, he is never ill, and will probably die some day as a spark goes out, gradually and without a struggle. Mr. Harding does dine with him very often, which means going to the palace at three and remaining till ten. And whenever he does not, the bishop whines, and says that the port wine is corked, and complains that nobody attends to him, and frets himself off to bed an hour before his time. It was long before the people of Barchester forgot to call Mr. Harding by his long, well-known name of Warden. It had become so customary to say Mr. Warden that it was not easily dropped. No, no, he always says when so addressed. At not warden now, only precentor. End of chapter 21 Recording by Jessica Louise, St. Paul, Minnesota End of The Warden by Anthony Trollope Mike Rowe here with a few thoughts on my favorite sweatshirt a classic zip-up hoodie that used to be navy blue but has since faded to what the fashionistas call a distressed indigo. It's 13 years old, soft as a flannel bathrobe, and after a few hundred dirty jobs, demonstrably and undeniably indestructible. This is the kind of sweatshirt girlfriends like to permanently borrow, but I've held on to this one because I got it from American Giant. American Giant makes all their stuff right here in the USA so they can control every link in their own supply chain. That matters, because when you buy American Giant, you not only get great quality, you create jobs for people in factory towns all over the country. No pressure, but if you give a damn about the business of making things in America, you got to support the companies who are doing it right. Go to American-Giant.com slash Mike to get 20% off your first order. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.